All right, Kelly, welcome to night four of Mixed Up Confusion. Man, it's a killing me. There's just too many people. And they're all too hard to please. Tonight, we're going to the show and we're going to watch the band perform. Moondog Matinee and Cahoots. Cahoots. I don't know if this would be the one you would want to go to. We'll get to that at the end of the band experience. Once we get to night five, we'll kind of go over the pros and cons, if you will, of what night you would go to. Oof, I didn't even thought about that. It's tough. We'll have to give it a lot of thought. <laughs> but tonight we're going to do Moondog Matinee and Cahoots. And Kelly, spoiler alert, I'm not that mad. I'm just not that mad about it. I don't know if you are. You're probably bringing a little bit of fire, and I'm excited for it. But we're going to start <laughs> with Moondog Matinee, which is perfect, because you imagine going to the show, you're going to get some weirdo band playing a bunch of covers. Before we even get into Moondog Matinee itself, as you know, it's an album of covers, how do you feel right off the bat, just generally, about listening to the band cover other songs? On... Um- like by itself, just listening to the album? Yeah, just the album itself. Without the reference of the songs that they're covering? Sure, yes. Uh, boring. I mean, and it doesn't sound like them, really? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it does. I don't know. This album certainly sounds like what they'll end up sounding like, I feel. It's great. So, it's important to remember that, but it's also yeah. important to forget it for the moment that it's in. Right. Yeah, I have a hard time with that. I think starting with Islands like really colored mm-hmm. my comparison which is the point of this yeah it's the point of the night thing because you go back to the beginnings and then you do the end because i think it's natural to start with music from big pink and make it all the way to the end but i will be you're kidding yourself if you don't make it past moondog and say i don't know if i'm here for the long haul like you're about to give up and so we're kind of forcing it which mm-hmm. is good because you need that with the band because as essential of a band they are they're not they don't have albums that stack up across time, for sure. And I would say that this one is definitely... These two are definitely not those albums. It also made me think of Hip Hop Triplicate. Okay. Um, but the difference being that these songs are practically contemporary. They're only... Some of them only a couple of years old. Yeah. So it's interesting that they'd be doing covers of it, mm-hmm. almost as, you know, a lot of people were still playing songs that were written by other people at that time because we're coming out of that like where we exclusively had songwriters and then performers True. we're still transitioning out of that in the in the 50s in the late 60s even um, well I chalked this up to nostalgia I mean it's like a 20 year cycle right that's the whole thing so right. they're playing the 50s in 1973 I mean that's not that long ago exactly and we are obsessed with the 90s today in 2018 that so it's like true. I think we're just going to keep I think that that cycle, even though it's like built into pop culture itself, and we're going to keep doing the 20th anniversary stuffs. I, I mean, a podcast that bases themselves on the 20th anniversary or something. I mean, what a joke. <laughs> what a joke. Who would do Who would that? do something like that? But I think we think in those terms. We always want to have anniversaries and stuff like that. So I think taking that away is important to enjoy Moondog Matinee. Uh, and I think the other thing that's interesting bringing up triplicate i think is great but almost any of the bands from that era that are still playing they were doing this at the height of their powers i mean literally they are still one of the best bands out there doing a cover record that doesn't always happen we think of cover records today as washed up oh, like I mean, what they're the, doing the waning in, of your career yeah. jericho everything from the very first night is that right. all of those covers we didn't even listen to them because there's just not a point to it, you know? And now we, we have to confront now in night four that this was an event, this was a thing, and, you know, people weren't really into it, but it is interesting that they did it then. And Bob Dylan certainly tried too, and I think it's important. Self-Portrait was another attempt at doing this sort of thing, taking songs that meant something to him, playing it. That was a disaster, and I think you can say Triplicate is a, a success because it's interesting to do it as an old man. They were doing this as young men, which is kind of strange. Uh, from William Ruhlman's All Music Guide, he says, quote, the band essentially went back to being the Hawks of the late 50s and 60s on mm. an album of cover tunes. Yeah. Uh, they demonstrated considerable expertise on their versions of rock and roll and R&B standards, uh, from Clarence Frogman, Henry's Ain't Got No Home, to Chuck Berry's The Promised Land, to Fats Domino's I'm Ready. But of course, that didn't do much to satisfy the audience they had established with their original material, and that two years after the disappointing cahoots, spoiler alert, <laughs> was waiting for something in the same league with their first three albums. That's true. I, I almost 
Of course it is. From the liner notes of this record, quote, the album title saluted pioneer disc jockey Alan Freed's original Cleveland radio show, Moondog Rock and Roll Party. Even the original packaging of the album, which featured Edward Casper's evocative cover painting of the group, uh, group members taking a cigarette break outside of a nightclub in the original Capitol album label, uh, sought to conjure up an atmosphere of an earlier time, an era when rock and roll was a music of soulful intimacy. Ooh, maybe Robbie's inside because he didn't write any of these songs. So Peter Viney, the historian of the band, says, quote, How far should one read into the placing of the characters? <laughs> the album is produced by the band. Equal credits reinforced by a strict alphabetical order. No Robin, uh, Robbie Robinson compositions either, so it must have been a five-way split. But note that Robertson's character is isolated inside of the cafe, gazing at the jukebox, i.e. he is making the selections. Uh. All the members are outside. Manuel's character is solitary, lost in the shadows, leaning against a window as if looking in at Robinson, except that his eyes are rolled upwards. The stance isn't, is that of the, his stance is that of the observer. Danko is sitting alone, against a fire hydrant reading C&W, Country and Western, hits intently. This is a waste of time for him, because there is not one Country and Western number that makes it onto the album. All nine songs were originally done by African-American singers. Hudson and Helm are chatting in a doorway and sharing a Coke, or rather, they are grasping at the same bottle. Helm is in his Razorbacks t-shirt. So let's go through the set list. The band have come up on stage. They're getting ready to go, Kelly. And they start off with Clarence Frogman Henry's Ain't Got No Home. I don't think I've ever listened to this song before, and it's fucking awesome. No, I I mean, I, I'm i going to just say off the bat that every single one of these songs is worse than the original. I just... Yes. With the exception of Mystery Train, but only because it's interesting. Yes. Uh, I, absolutely. Yeah. That is my entire <laughs> okay, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so um, I love the original. It was really fun. The frog voice is so weird. The top 20 hit, and that's his, his nickname comes from him singing like a frog man. Yeah, which is like... I don't think super talented-ness, because anybody can just do this. It's not exactly Can they, though? Hard. I mean, Levi didn't even try. I he know. just did a He's vocal. He's an effect. Yeah, yeah. Effect. It's like, lazy. 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 <laughs> um, not a good thing to open your album with that. But I'm glad you brought up the Hawks, because they were a rockabilly backing band, mm-hmm. and it's like, that's absolutely all this, um, the majority of this. Yeah album is just like rockabilly songs yeah and it's i mean it's that melding i mean that's why people love big pink because it's the melding of the country western and the gospel and r&b and everything it's putting all of it together and the fact that all of these songs don't follow you know the the country western thing they really lean into the the soul and the Mm r&b is great and really i mean makes a lot of sense and i think i think that's why this album is better than it could have been because I don't, I don't know if I want to see the band playing country western songs. I mean, it makes a little more sense for someone like Bob Dylan, who does do that later, right. invents alt country, if you will, quote unquote. It's like that makes a little more sense, and maybe, maybe because it happened, you know, maybe, maybe the band would be different if they did go that direction. Maybe that was what was keeping them, you know, stilted. Who knows? I mean, I disagree a little bit, only that I don't want them to be country and western songs either. But the fact that they're so true to the original song makes this whole album unnecessary. Because to me, a good cover is like turning a song on its head Mm -hmm. and really changing it and really making it your own. And none of these, they're just like a slightly funkier version of the original, but only slightly. And that's, I mean, we start this record that way and we end the record. Yeah. why the covers he said quote that was all we could do at the time we couldn't get along we knew uh we all knew that fairness was a bunch of shit we all knew that we were getting screwed so we couldn't sit down and create no more music up on cripple creek and all that stuff was over all that collaboration was over and that type of song was all that we could do because you can't can't fight over who wrote the song when you didn't write it yeah so we'll just play covers god speaking of (laughs) covers and a cover album track two holy cow we listened to uh, the Lee Dorsey, uh, who made it popular. It was produced by the great Alan Toussaint, who we will talk a lot about today and on night five. He was born right here in Portland. People don't know that. I didn't Alan know Toussaint? That. I don't even know who... No, no, no. Lee uh, Dorsey. He's from New, York, New Orleans. Uh, Lee Dorsey, right here in Portland. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was at the height of his popularity during the Dylan Hawks British tour in 1966. And this song, which is a classic, went to number 23 in the U.S. and number six in the U.K. Uh-huh. I love this song. Yeah. I mean, that's... 
It's so classic. I didn't realize I knew it until it was really hitting the chorus. If I do know this song, because it's so that genre of music mm-hmm. that like a lot of the songs sound like this. They do. They very much um, do. But like, a lot I of love... them on here sound like that. Yeah, well, yeah, I was just saying, I love the platters, and the platters mm-hmm. is nothing but that, that. kind of stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good. And again, just the, the band only... The, oh, the other thing that the band did to every one of these songs was make them 30 seconds to five minutes longer. Yeah. Which, why? <laughs> we know... You hate that, yeah. Um, yeah, no. I think I think um, while it's longer, I think it does move. You know, I, they get the they get the tones right. Like again, you maybe want it uh, flipped on its head, but I'm glad that like this song is just a fast song. Like, yeah, it's a quick song in reality done by Lee Dorsey, and it's a quick song by them. Uh, I think Hudson Sachs is pretty good. I like um, the the organ made it yeah. feel a little funky. So thanks, Garth. Was- You're really going to save a lot of this record. Track three. Share Your Love With Me. We listened to Bobby Blue Bland, mm-hmm. who uh, originated it. It charted at number 42 in the U.S. The Hawks were playing this song before it even became a hit. But it was Aretha Franklin's cover in 1969 that was the biggest hit for this song. Mm-hmm. And it was a direct follow-up to her cover of The Weight by the band. No shit. I know. Crazy. I didn't know she covered that song. Um, the original, the Bobby Bland version is really, his voice is beautiful and beautiful. it's like very sweeping, theatrical, slower song, mm-hmm. um, which isn't totally my thing. I didn't like love the original song, but I still liked it better than the, <laughs> the band version. Uh, they thankfully didn't make it any longer, but, um, <laughs> they, they did just a little bit of the rock disco synth thing, which mm-hmm. is, um. They made it more of like a, a little more rocky and synthy and disco-y, which better suits Richard Manuel's voice than um, yeah. than yeah. the kind of sweeping theatrical thing would have done. I, oh, totally. That would have been really strange. Yeah. Mainly because you can't do it. That's what I've learned, too, is that all, every time that there's a violin or something going on in one of the originals, they go about a different... I mean, being, yeah. mainly Garth has to do something to either provide it or they take it away. And mm-hmm. I think that's... It does have it here. There's like a warmth to the song. Um, I, I think this song... I was on, because I don't really care for the Bobby Bland version. It's just kind of fine. It's whatever. Mm-hmm. I think I'm on the fence here. The band, I might actually prefer this one. Um, I might just be swayed because, like, Growl Marcus and, you know, a lot of the people who write about the band really like this. Uh, Barney Hoskins, who we talked about on night three a lot, and we'll talk about more uh, now. He said, quote, the quiet, the quietly despairing share your love with me was the best thing Richard had done since sleeping, which we talked about last week. Mm. Um, I know he was really proud of share your love, says Joe Forno, who was one of the producers. It meant a lot to him when Grail Marcus, um, who we've talked about before, and he's a scholar of the band and Bob Dylan, wrote in a book, which he titled Mystery Train, about the music of the era. Uh, he said that he had improved on the original um, meaning that um, Richard was really over the moon um, by him saying that, Grail Marcus saying that, because Bobby Bland was one of his idols. So the fact that he felt like he outclassed Bobby Blue, uh, Bland was amazing. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. It's kind of cool to even feel like you outdid your idol. The best song on this album, track number four, Mystery Train. Hell yeah. We listened to the Junior Parker version in 1953. Elvis covered it in 55. That's also on the playlist as well. Sam Phillips produced both versions he said quote it was pure rhythm at the end elvis was laughing because he didn't think it was a take but i'm sorry it's a fucking masterpiece dave marsh put elvis's version at number 12 on his book 1001 greatest singles ever made he said quote junior parker's version a minor r&b hit in 53 is spooky because it details what fate can do to a man elvis makes you want to defy all the omens uh, head to the graveyard and dance fearlessly at midnight how do you follow that come down to the station good song yeah it's great uh the junior parker version is really cool because it does he mimics the sound of a train really well and it's just a fun like blues song Mm -hmm. 
but I like the band's interpretation of it because this is the one they go the furthest with. This is the one they change the most. Um, and it's neat. It's like a fun noodley song that yeah. uh, I don't mind that they added the three minutes to. And Robbie, they, the minutes are there because A, white people love trains, and B, <laughs> Robbie Robertson added lyrics. So this was, he added um, his own his own stuff. So Grau Marcus, again, he took uh, the name of his book, he named it Mystery Train, on the song uh, to talk about the music of this era. He said uh, about this song, quote, Mystery Train was almost completely retooled by Robertson. He kept the verse first, added two of his own, and made up the chords from scratch. When Robinson's new lyrics emerged, they sound like they'd been on the song since it was first sung, 70 years or twice as long ago. Robert Palmer, uh, who's another writer about the band, said that this is one of the band's masterpieces. I don't know if I totally agree with that. And going back to my boy Barney Hoskins, he says, In Presley's playing, Presley's playfully spooky reading, it became an archetypal song of American distance and loss, with the train as a sexual robber bearing people away into the night. The resonance of the imagery may be a little lost in our age of commuter planes, but it wasn't lost on a Canadian like Robbie, whose country had been opened up by the railroad in the first place. <laughs> sure, Barney. Sure, everybody. Uh, it's a fan- I think it's a fantastic song. I think if it came out of, uh, if they were playing it live, I would be, I'd be dancing along. Yeah, it's like a fun psychedelic take. Definitely the highlight of this album. Moondog. Yeah. Ooh, the- note. What mystery train? Did you see the cover of that album from? Yeah, the oh, no. Junior Parker song. No. Yeah, so it's not the album that that song is on of Junior Parker's, but apparently there was a movie in 1992 called Mystery Train, oh, no. and I just want you to look at the cover of the soundtrack to that movie oh, because no. what is fucking happening? Images. And now that you bring up the Mystery Train book thing, and it has a bunch of music from that time, I wonder if they made a movie about Japanese people who love American music from the 50s and 60s. I don't know what it is. I didn't. I forgot to look it up. With like the lipstick. Yeah. And they're just staring off. Is one of them dead? I don't know. Oh, it's a meme now. They're putting like graduation caps on them and like. Oh no, he has one, but they put him somewhere else. <laughs> oh no. You oh no, she has a coat like white. Take a peek at the synopsis real quick, so we can know what Whoa. the fuck this movie is. Mystery Train. Yes, Mystery Train film. 1989 independent anthology film written, directed by Jim Jarmish, set in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, the film is a uh, bunch of stories involving foreign protagonists unfolding over the same night. So kind of a, They are linked by a rundown flophouse overseen by a night clerk, Screaming Jay Hawkins, and his disheveled bellboy, Cynic Lee. And there's a scene featuring Elvis Presley's Blue Moon and a gunshot. Listen, I don't know what Wikipedia is doing. They're acting like I've seen this, but it's a long article, so... Yeah, it grossed over one point five million dollars. Enjoyed critical acclaim. Wow! From the New York Festival, New York Film Festival, and Cannes. That poster is whack. Yeah, it's nuts. There's something going on, but you know what? It's probably Jim Jarmusch. I mean, what else has that guy done? His name is almost as big as Mystery Train, uh, Stranger <laughs> Than Paradise, Down by Law, uh, Dead Man, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, Coffee and Cigarettes. I've heard of that. Ghost Dog. He did Ghost Dog. Ghost Dog. Sure. The oh Way my of the God. Samurai. Uh, Broken Flowers. That's that's a movie. I think that's like uh, what's his face. Ghost Dog is a really fucking sad, weird movie oh, where man. Forrest Whitaker, he's the the guy with like the eye. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, it's him. It's him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's a samurai in the hood. Yeah, that's right. He's a hitman in the employee of the mafia who follows an ancient code of samurai. Um, yeah. It's so rough. People again. This is another one. Huge Wikipedia article. Well, I mean, People it's basically, that it. movie is a Wu-Tang album come to life. 82% certified fresh. On oh, <laughs> my God. That's amazing. $9 million uh, worldwide. $3 million in the U.S. Wow, we're going to, it's going to become a ghost. Oh, no. And actually, the film's soundtrack and score was done by Rizzo. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. And it makes complete sense. Yep. That is 100% on brand for the Rizzo. So we'll see you next week for our Ghost Dog podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to go minute by minute on Ghost Dog. Boom. Oh, Jesus. That's what people still do, I think. Do they? I don't know. Kelly, back to <laughs> back to Moondog Matinee. Speaking of matinees, we're in the middle of it. So naturally, we have to have An intermission? a weird intermission. So the third man theme is jarring. So have, you've heard this before, I guess. I thought this was the Curb Your Enthusiasm thing song. So It's very similar. It's... Okay, so Anton Karas, 
1949 wrote the Third Man theme. For the movie. The the, of the, the, by the Orson Welles film Third Man. Uh, so 4 million copies in 1950, and it topped the U.S. charts for 11 weeks. A cover that same year by another artist sold a million copies. Director Carol Reed of The Third Man wanted to avoid obvious Viennese waltzes, so when she heard Karas playing the zither in a wine garden, it was over. She was like, I need that zither. Time magazine said that the audience would be, quote, in a dither with his zither. Mm-hmm. A concert zither, I don't know what a zither is. It's a stringed instrument, right? 29 to 38 strings, although the 34 and 35 are typical. They're arranged by, quote, four or five fretted melody strings placed above a guitar-like fretboard. Mm -hmm. 12 unfretted accompaniment strings, followed by 12 unfretted bass strings, followed by a varying number of contrabass strings, with five or six being the most common number. For Third Man, he used... Um, he tuned it in a semitone... He tuned it a semitone lower, giving it a distinctive contrabass tone to his contrabass strings. I don't know what any of that really means. It's not a handheld instrument, right? It's you use mount, little mallets? It's not mallets, it's all strings. Is it? Oh, okay. I, I but it's just know. like on a on a table. It's on top. a board. It's yeah. like it's one of those like it's just a like imagine this table and you just sort of carved out and then you put a bunch of strings yeah. on it. So you can probably play it on your it with lap. Mallets. I'm confusing it with something else. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, this is nuts. Yeah. So that song was a little, I mean, obviously five minutes. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I get the gist of it. Right. Um, I appreciate the sentiment, you know, not wanting to do the waltzes. That's cool. I mean, that's definitely a different sound. But it's so comedic. From the liner notes, though, of, of this album, quote, the album itself is programmed like a club set. A mixture of rockers and ballads with a break song smack in the middle. Marcus said of the song, it, quote, might have been the hit single that the band never had, though it would have to cross <laughs> over to the easy listening charts to make it. Whew. Nice. Yeah, it's um, it's weird. Mm-hmm. It's weird. I, the two don't actually even make any sense to me. So, like, if you want to talk about the one that's probably the most the most different, I feel like this one is. I don't see the true connection between the two. So, oh well, I thought. I mean, were. the zither is so different. I mean, I get it; they're playing the same right. thing, but they're just so different musically, and and it's unlistenable. It's unfucking listenable. <laughs> I just need a drink in my hand to get through this. Track six, Kelly, "The Promised Land," Chuck Berry. 1964, Chuck Berry wrote this while in Springfield Penitentiary. He had difficulty, quote, in trying to secure a road atlas of the United States to verify the route for Po' Boy from Norfolk, yeah, to Los Angeles. The penal institutions were not so generous as to offer a map of any kind, fearing that it would provide a route for my escape. So, wow. But he did eventually get it, and well, the roadmap checks out. I want to shout out Norfolk as the beginning of the track. Hell yeah. That's where I got my, that's where I went to college. This was uh, ambitious in a poor twist. Chuck Berry's guitar and his voice, Mm. like, why even try? Mm. Don't, just don't do it. Because you're never going to do it better. Especially when you're just playing it completely straight the same exact way. Super straight. Yeah, it's not not a great idea. The Chuck Berry song's great, but this was a poor twist. Track number seven, The Great Pretender. We listened to the Platters version. Uh, it sounded like it could be instantly on a fallout. I know. I know. Inside. I just wrote fallout. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was number one, the number one album of 1955. Uh, they were the first black artist to have a number one hit, which is crazy. Freddie Mercury brought the song back to number four in 1987. Yeah, I saw that. Which is kind of nuts. This song. Um, this I'm was not... their biggest hit, too, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. There was like and one other one that was almost sold as well as this, but I think this was their biggest hit. I'm not mad at this track. I love 50s mall trap music. Like, I'm a huge sucker for this shit, so. Yeah. So how did you feel the moon, the moon Dog did? How did the Moon Dogs do? Um, I thought that it was, I, I wrote, sorry, Garth, sorry, Richard, but this just oh, feels cheesy and forced. Yeah. Well, true. I think the cheesiness is maybe on purpose. Uh, I thought Manuel was really doing stuff with his voice, which was kind of funny. And the organ over the bridge in particular was really cool. And... Yeah, I, like I'm not was mad. goofy, but I think the song is kind of goofy. It's just—I mean, well, song. yeah, but when they're singing it, when the players sing it, it feels earnest, and it's like this is a sad song. I'm fucking bummed, and you know the and I, I'm sure that Manuel picked it because that's how he feels. Like 
I'm, oh well, no. Remember, Robbie. Robbie is the one picking the songs. Remember oh, the right. jukebox. So sorry. Yeah. So sorry. Never mind. <laughs> I don't think that he's picking because he's sad. He's he's denying that he's sad. And finally, to close out the Moondog Matinee set, we're gonna end with a classic song. Another huge mistake. Another. I think it's <laughs> I think it's a more huge mistake in hindsight than it is in this moment. I think that's important. This is a a more important one to remember. Uh, even though it was a big thing at the time, I think just with our memorialization of the civil rights movement and everything that's come, this along with Blowing in the Wind and stuff like that are just canonized now. It's really hard to like even see them as songs. They've almost come out of, uh, you know, from heaven. You know, just to show up in the moment. So uh, obviously, Sam Cooke is our originator of this song, uh, which is an impossible thing to follow. So balls on them for trying. Except for Otis Redding, oh. I gotta say I like his version a little bit better, but I and still love Sam Cooke. Kind of fell into that a little bit too because people really get into the Otis version versus this. And, and you can't get away from it because Otis's version came out right after he died in a plane crash and Sam's version is Kim. posthumous after he was right. shot and killed. Um, in 2007, this was... Oh, actually, funnily, just to go back to it, this was originally uh, released as a B-side to the song Shake, which I don't even... 2007, this was preserved in the Library of Congress for all time. Number 12 on Rolling Stone's Greatest Songs of All Time. Number 3 on Pitchfork's 200 Greatest Songs of the 60s. So we're talking about a canonical song, but if you go back to 73, the 60s weren't written in stone the way that they kind of are today, so we're five years beyond 1968, especially the, the uproar and um, craziness of that year. The band are very much part of that too, so it doesn't help, it doesn't matter, because in the end, it's not very good. But I, I, I don't fault them for trying. I think trying today would be a huge mistake. Yeah, I didn't know... <laughs> I really like Sam Cooke, I mean, especially his last album that came out right after he died mm-hmm. um i think that's the, the best one but he i didn't know anything about him i didn't know he got shot in a hotel yeah, and like the I. the events around his death are very weird sketched out like nobody knows nobody knows what really know. happened I and mean, because they have the story of um is it the hotel clerk or whatever yeah i can't remember her name right. um that shot him and then there was also some a potential sex worker that was involved too who had maybe robbed him but then people say that he kidnapped her and it's just like this whole thing so it's like is there not a movie about this that's crazy like, right i need a movie to tell me what happened and i want to know about his life there there was one sam cook legend uh that was a documentary that was more about okay. his life and stuff that i do want to watch but yeah that was wild also did you know that blowing in the wind inspired this song i didn't know that because i did sam cook heard it and then he was like how's this white guy gonna write this civil rights song i need to write a civil rights song well, i don't think it was that i know but yes. Yeah. But it, but like, it's a, and it's it's a great game. He was like, yeah. I can't believe this guy's written something so soulful about the situation. What am I doing? I need to do get I, on this shit. Absolutely. And I feel, again, Bob Dylan said he wrote Blown in the Wind in 10 minutes. And it was like he wasn't writing it. Somebody else was writing it. I'm sure Sam Cooke would probably, if he were alive, say the same thing. It's almost just words that come out. They just flow out. Mm-hmm. And the song is really fucking simple. Really simple. And even the, the one verse that, um, but there's the line about going to the cinema... And people telling you to go away. Mm-hmm. But it is literally just that. I went to go look up that line because I was like, oh, it's going to be like real racy or something. And it's literally just, I went to the cinema, but people told me that I need to leave. Well, that was based on the, him being at a hotel and being asked to leave. Yeah, yeah. Him. No, I understand the whole context yeah. of it. I just think it's wild that like, it's so, such a human little f- sentence. But I just, I just thought it would be, I just thought it would be more scandalous. Uh-huh. I mean, it makes sense <laughs> that they wouldn't, that they wouldn't say it because it's, it's not true to their. Right. But then again, it's. I think again, we're so far beyond that time, and so much, so much worse stuff has been said that it's wild to even just try to remember that, like, simple things like going to a cinema were such a crazy deal yeah. then. So, uh, yeah, and Grau Marcus just to close out on that, talking about the importance of the track, said Cook said, "quote Cook was dead when his answer to." Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind appeared on the radio. The new country that he demanded, an old country really, that promised land without a catch, without separation, without exclusion, flared up with a passion in his voice and his whole body and then it faded away. The song remains a rebuke of the decades that followed it, passing by the time the way that you might pass a bum on the street.
Oh, I did one, awesome. one quick aside. I constantly was calling this record uh, Moon Dog Daydream because of David Bowie's Moon Age Daydream. Oh, nice. So just in my head, it will forever be Moon Dog Daydream. We should have just listened to that. We should have. And just pretended like it was a band. Yeah. And no one would know. <laughs> no one would know. Or pretend that we were watching their set while listening to that on some big 70s headphones. Oh, nice. I like to imagine that we're there in the 70s. Hmm. I didn't do that. No. I didn't know that was a mental exercise you were supposed to do. No, me either. <laughs> All right, Kelly, after intermission, we come back, and the band is uh, is starting up, getting ready to start cahoots for the the close of night four. Uh, once again, as always, we've got uh, you know Danko, uh, Helm, Hudson, Manuel, Robbie Robertson. Uh, Hudson, let's just point it out, he's on the organ, piano, accordion, tenor, and the baritone sax. So he's kind of scaled back from the heights and craziness of stage fright. So it's going to be a more it's going to be more organic record, man. It's going to be getting back to the roots. Which I appreciate. I did not hate this record. Surprisingly. A lot of people really angry at, at it. So let's get into it, I guess. Uh, track one uh, from set two of night four. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Life is a Carnival. Written by, uh, this one was written by Robertson and Danko and Helm. And the vocals are Helm and Danko. Yeah, I think that this, it was, I didn't know what I was going to get into mm-hmm. because it's been a rocky road. Yeah. Uh, but I love that we started right off the bat with like funk and whimsy and like, it sounded like we're having fun, which was missing from some other records. You loving those horns? I do. I actually do. The There's so many horns. The brass was arranged by the great Alan Toussaint. Oh, no kidding. And because of his association with this, he will be at night five, which we'll get to later on. Nice. Um, I don't know what they did with the organ to make it sound all watery like that. It sounded like a water phone, which if you don't know what that is. They, somebody said it sounded like he went through liquid nitrogen. Oh, interesting. I don't know if that's just like a saying or... I don't know. You could really So a water phone is this crazy looking thing. So imagine um, a small bongo drum almost made out of metal. And there are t- tines, tin, you know, like on a fork that, mm-hmm. that are in varying length around it. But you turn it upside down, put water in the middle because there's a hole in it. And you uh, play it with a viol- uh, violin bow. Wow. And it's that sound that you hear in horror movies. It's like, that's a water phone. So it really kind of had that vibe to it, I thought. But I think it's just an organ. Shit, who's on a water phone? I don't know. <laughs> Hudson. Hudson would be, though. Yeah. He'd be like, don't don't put that on there. Make I'm them a- think it was an organ. My competition. Yeah. Water phone. Um, and I also like the message of the song because it's like, life is fucking crazy and sad, but at least we're all doing it together. Take away, take away this house of mirrors, take, give away, give away all the souvenirs. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Rolling Stone said in their review at the time, quote, Cahoots is about finding a place for yourself in the restless age, which if there is a restless age in 1971 and two, which it certainly was, we are certainly living through another restless age as well, sure. to put it. Loosely. We also started this with a with a Cahoots radio commercial. That was so fun. I completely forgot about that. A band of gypsies. <laughs> <laughs> like it's weird. Which I'll, I'll see, it. I want to see the gypsy for the problematic content. For, for all, or uh, if the apocalypse comes to me, a classic uh, twenty year podcast that we uh, <laughs> that we love so much. Track two, right afterwards, uh, when I paint my masterpiece, written by one and only Bob Dylan. Vocals leave on helm. So we will revisit this song so we don't need to go super deep into it. So when we get uh, Dylan, we'll listen to this again. Um, how'd you feel about this one, though? I love the giant bass. I love the mandolin, mm-hmm. uh, which oh, yeah. has featured in a lot of the records. And on, on the, mandolin. the accordion's great. I mean, you definitely set the Italian atmosphere. Like, one of my favorite memories from being in Lecce in Italy was we were walking down the street to go to the grocery store, and a dude was straight up just playing the accordion in the alley. I was like, this is the most Italian moment of my life. Sure. Well, I, I think we'll get more into that, but I mean, I think it's the manufacturing of the Italianness of the scene that is also interesting because we're going to get to a really bad one called Shootout in Chinatown, where oh, it right, does right, the yeah. same sort of thing. And again, I think they're playing on a theme here, which we'll get to as we keep going. But yeah, it definitely gives it a European tourist flavor, but I think tourist is probably the most important word in there. Oh, the streets of Rome are filled with rubble Ancient footprints are everywhere You can almost think that you're seeing double 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because like, what? I don't know what this song is about. Because I was like, is it about like an infamous incident or person? I couldn't really. Because everything's chill. It's just like retelling a story, kind mm-hmm. of like a little experience you had while you were a tourist in Europe. Until the end, and I'm like, what? Are these paparazzi? Or are people, are you getting arrested? Like, the, I, what the fuck is happening? I think it's just Bob Dylan got on a plane and he went to. Oh, uh, okay. And he's going to save her all in Greece. Um, Dirty Gondola. This was, oh, yeah, Dirty Gondola, <laughs> oh, to be back in the land of Coca-Cola. Great, great line. But, um, no, this was the B-side to Watching the River Flow, interestingly enough. So this was, this was uh, when he went to go record that single just outside of his records. This was another one that he wrote and recorded outside of the record. Okay, so th- this is a straight-up Bob Dylan song. This is a Bob Dylan so song. So they're just, like, covering. Y- yes. Okay. But it kind of goes back to before where it's... He might, I don't know when he wrote this. I guess we'll have to get into that later. But he had the song, he recorded it in 1974, so at the same time as this one. But the band also did it. But, okay, but because like but some it's a of the Bob songs Dylan song. on Big Pink, he wrote for them, but never recorded himself. I don't know if he wrote it for them. Okay. I think he gave it to them. Right, but he never recorded the, a couple of those ones. He did on the basement tapes. Okay. So a lot of these stuff we're going to hear again. Yeah. And that's why it's like we don't need to harp on it too much because a lot of this will be covered when we get Bob Dylan. Okay. But a lot of these songs, especially on Cahoots, I mean, we will only talk about when I paint my masterpiece. Big Pink, we're going to do a lot more of just because of the basement tapes vibe. But no, so this one, I think we'll just get into at the time. I prefer. Um, this version to Bob Dylan's though yeah. Bob kind of just does a regular because he does the watching the river flow you know it's very rocky you know it's it's good um, but I don't know I just I really enjoy the the accordion vibe he does not do that so. yeah I like I like the first three songs on this album uh, are great and then it just gets worse so let's go to the next one that's good oh yes okay you said the first three great yeah. because uh, yeah Last of the Blacksmiths uh, people really don't like this this song but I it's I really, so weird I love it me too so uh, written by Robbie Robertson vocals by uh, Richard Manuel which I think is crucial Rolling Stone um, citing this song, wrote, quote, The mood of this album is filled with a tinge of extinction. As the chaos of the carnival is played off against the timelessness of the river, the band mourns, always more in sorrow than in anger, the passing away of things that they've grown old with and the failure of anything of consequence to rise up in their place. How are we going to replace human hands, they ask us in Last of the Last yeah. Fantastic. I think the message is cool and sad, yeah. but I just that that fucking sound. What is it? I was like, is this a, like a screwed up saxophone? Is it a weird guitar effect? I could not figure it out. And I love the dark sax solo, right? Yeah. What, well, what what is that sound? I don't know. Because at one point I thought maybe it was like, and I don't know what it's called, and I'm gonna sound like clarinet or something. Or yeah, maybe oh, like it like that specific woodwind instrument that like snake charmers use. Not oh, to be super yeah. problematic, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I don't, it sounds kind of like that because it's got this this buzz to it. Like it's very strange, but I love it. It should be like a like a stick with a kind of a big circle. At the yeah, end. so it's called a punji. Yeah, and, okay. it, and it works just continuously because it's working when you suck in and blow out, like a bagpipe almost. Yeah, or you have an extra source of air. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's cool. So anyway, it sounded like that. I didn't know if it was a punji or not, or if it was just. I mean, because Garth is constantly coming up with instruments and doing weird shit. I so like at this point, Garth is like, "Keep my shit off," because I'm doing stuff. That cannot be mentioned. When I die, you can tell the people what I did. But until then. <laughs> until then, just, you know, put my the secret. tenor sax. I don't know. Well, I mean, some people, we learned about, you know, Josh Ami's is very guarded about his guitar setup and how he makes the sounds in his stuff. Some people keep it close to the vest. Oh, I'm sure Garth, it keeps it close to the vest. Yeah. Um, I thought it was very, like, less Claypool-y because it was just oh. really experimental and, and weird. But I love the darker tone of it, both lyrically and musically. It just, they don't really do that very much. No, I feel like, not in this specific way. I shouldn't say that because, like, what's the one? The old Dixie is, like, definitely clearly has a somber yeah. feel to it. But this is, I don't know, this is more like a sci-fi. Uh, well, <laughs> I think it's worth bringing up. You famously liken yourself to Blacksmith. So this is a song <laughs> for you. I know. Do you wish to speak more on your Blacksmith love? Um no, because okay. it only exists in fantasy role-playing games. That's fair. <laughs> you are the one that will play Skyrim and get to the village only to just be a blacksmith. I only and level and do missions so that I can be a blacksmith. And you can, yeah, get your material and pay for... <laughs> to make all the best armor. All the best armor. That's all which I want to do. Which will then never go out and use no, because, because I the game smith. is over. There's more smithing, point. yeah. Once the smithing is done, the game is done. Mm-hmm. Which is a commentary on this song, You're the Last <laughs> of the Blacksmiths. I think it's um, I think it's a bit overwritten. It's a bit nuts. But um, but but lines like "frozen fingers at the keyboard." Could this be the big reward? They were not thinking of keyboards like laptops, computers. But no, they, they I think has a different meaning today. I mean, they were probably talking more about music, but almost a commentary on is me playing music, doing anything in the right. world. But I think we can also today be like me typing on a keyboard, 
is this like really what life is about? Right. It's a little bleak. Um, but then I think it gets kind of nonsense. Like dead, dead tongues said the poet to the daughter of burlesque too soon. Uh, Choctaw, uh, Van Gogh and Geronimo, they used up what was left. And what does that mean? I don't know. So this kind of goes back to chess right. fever. Like what are the words? But I really love the way that Manuel sings it. And I love have mercy on the blacksmith. It's, it's just such a great line song. And I love the way all the instruments accentuate it. Really great song. Definitely the last great song of this album. Yes, I agree. I moved to the country that cried of shame. I left my home and found a man. No, nobody could explain. Have mercy, cried the blacksmith. How you gonna replace you? Track four, where do we go from here? Oh, woman, my woman, where do we go from here? <laughs> I can appreciate the beginning of this album. Um, talking about, did you hear the Eagle of Distinction, that one that came around every Friday afternoon? Well, it seems that Eagle has near flown into extinction. I can appreciate that because I remember I went to Cape Disappointment in Washington State, uh, and we were looking at bald eagles, and a guy came up to us and was like, have you seen Doofus? Have you seen Doofus? It's like, you got to go over here to go see Doofus because he is the bird you want to watch because he's going to get close to humans. And we call him Doofus because he shouldn't be fucking doing that. (laughs) And then I never saw, I don't know if I saw Doofus. I mean, maybe I saw him in passing. But he was the eagle of distinction. So when I heard that, I was like, I get it. But Kelly, seriously, seriously, have you ever seen the freedom of the wing? No, but I do love the falsetto on like Wing and the last. It's it's. Do you love it? I mean, that's kind of. What you say? Like when they do, do, I love it. It's the only fun thing that's happening. Really, (laughs) Um, that's sad. Well, the organ post-chorus is is pretty neat, and it's also interesting that that's the only real distortion modified Mm -hmm. instrument in it. It's like um, it mimics a a distorted guitar sound because it's only an acoustic guitar in the track. It is. But when Garth goes on the organ towards the end of the chorus, yeah, it sounds almost like. Electric guitar, so I thought yeah, that was pretty neat. But revving it up, not great. Yeah, Peter Peter Viney, who who is the historian of the band, he he is, notes that everybody does sing on the chorus, which again is a classic band staple. Mm-hmm. But no one's harmonizing. I didn't seem to mind that, but he's not wrong. Like listening back, they are just kind of singing. No one's really yeah. trying to harmonize. And I think what makes them great is that they all have great voices and distinctive voices. But when they do get harmonies, they really crush it. So this one, I don't know, it just feels really hollow. Not not a super fan. Track number five, I think another okay song in my opinion, 4% Pantomime. This was written by Robbie Robertson and Van Morrison. What? Vocals, Richard Manuel, of course, and Van Morrison. What? <laughs> what do you think about this one? This, I'm torn. I do not this like one. this one. Yeah. I think Van Morrison was the worst part of the song. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. Van Morrison's tough because uh, he's I can't do him anymore because he's so old, but you know, Astro Weeks Man is still a thing. He he was definitely a he was definitely a thing. What's at this a time. famous Van Morrison song? I feel like I don't know who this is. I get him confused with the guy who's from the Doors. Hope it don't rain all day. And it's me to my soul. Star just like jelly rolls. And it's me. Yet it's me to my soul. Brown Eyed Girl, like, be my brown girl. That, that song, that's him? I kind of, I never knew it was Van Morrison. It doesn't really clock for me. Uh, I just, I kind of like the arrangement. I think that's really what I like about the song. But the song is kind of bananas. So you just didn't like the song? I think it was interesting, but I don't think I liked it in the end. The, like, the meta-ness of the song. Okay. I don't know. It's weird to be like talking to each other. In yeah, the... Rolling Stone did say that. They said um, in their original review, um, they said, quote, uh, unlike Stage Fright, which analyzed the artist's dilemma, 4% pantomime is simply about being a working artist. Many of the band songs have been in the first person, but none of them literal representations of themselves. Yeah. This one even uses their real names in the chorus. You know, which, oh, Richard, right. oh, Van does, and then, oh, Belfast Cowboy, that Richard says, because Robbie was like, you can't say, oh, Van. 
We can't just really do it. <laughs> so we're going to call you the Belfast Cowboy, which, which is like why? hilarious. And like, don't really understand at all. Uh, the connection between them, though, Robbie and Van Morrison were neighbors at Woodstock. Peter Viney said, uh, quote, Van was invited to play with the band on their fourth album. This was more of a privilege than it might seem nowadays. When Van played with the band in 1971, his name wasn't worth extra sales to them in any way. Hmm. He was there on merit. So I find that interesting. That interesting. Again, the band... Uh, it's hard to think of them now as being somebody like one of the bigger bands in in the world. I don't um, know why you would smash a bottle of Johnny Walker Red though. So what is the song about? So the song, do you know what it's about? No. Is it poker? No. Is the song is about poker? It's not. This song is about the four percent difference in proof between Johnny Walker Red and Johnny Walker Black. Get out of here. From Richard Helm. Quote from Richard Helm. Um, from Levon Helm. Quote: Richard Manuel played the drums with our neighbor Van Morrison on a raucous number cut in one take. Four percent pantomime. This happened when Van came to Bearsville, which was their studio, and began discussing the merits of Scotch whiskey with Richard. They acted out some of the lyrics about management and a poker game, and Richard sang, Oh, Belfast Cowboy, can you call a spade a spade? I mean, this, what a what a night. What a crazy night this sounds like. It was an extremely liquid session. Get it? Drunk. Van and Richard were really into it, and there was horror among the civilians at the studio when the two dead drunk musicians argued about who was going to drive the other home. Richard drove, and I think he made it. Lord knows he wrecked a lot of cars that year. Oh, my God. So a little bit rough. And I think that, again, the Rolling Stone review, that thing I read before about Stage Fright and about um, this song being about, quote, unquote, uh, simply being a working artist, kind of reinforces in real time, 1972, what being a real rock star is. And it's about being dead drunk and about talking about the differences and 4% between whiskey. And I think this is something, again, that we've smashed over the years of punk and DIY music is that you don't have to be superstars. You don't have to be fucking Jimmy Page downing a bottle of Jack Daniels. That idea was sort of reinforced on itself by a bunch of white guys who just wanted to be bad and be shitty. And this guy over here, Bob Dylan, definitely was part of that. So I think I find it interesting to read those reviews because it's just like, Rock stars being rock stars. And it's like, that's not that's not okay. No. So, uh, yeah, this song is, is a little bit rough. It's not good. Um, but it is it is an insight and a look in behind the curtain. And it's and that's interesting in and of itself. What's uninteresting is track six to go from that to Shootout in Chinatown. Written by Robbie Robertson. Vocals by Manuel Danko and Helm. Yeah. I like the guitar until I realized I it was the like guitar. a problematic, weird, appropriate China thing. Whatever's going on with that. The tone of it, the sound mm-hmm. of it? Yeah, it sounds rad. It sounds amazing. And then you're like, oh, this is just a precursor to move to Japan. According to Peter Viney, <laughs> he mo- the, it was really, the, the guitar was mocked on release. Mm. Like the song was never something that people were going nuts about. And I put in huge cap letters, wait for move to Japan. So we were both on the same page there. Grau Marcus says, quote, The music no longer had any life of its own. It took cues from the lyrics. And when the result wasn't flat, it was cute. When I Paint My Masterpiece was about an expatriate artist in Europe, so the tune featured a little Michael Legrand accordion. The utterly pointless shootout in t- Chinatown came complete with a Fu Manchu guitar, a touch so tasteless it verged on racism. Yep. And Peter Viney goes further. Levon uh, had admitted Robbie Robertson was f- uh, fighting to hold the band together through this recording. Only Robertson and Danko seemed to have had much interest in the album as a whole. Robertson was trying so desperately to reuse proven and trusted theme, hence the tour of Americana historical locations. Like we see uh, Masterpiece, we go to Europe, we see the circus, Life is mm-hmm. a Carnival, we see a Revival later on where the congregation gets together at, by the river, the uh, River Hymn, absolutely. So trying to do that, I think, is what he's trying to get at a little bit. It's not good. No, and also what's interesting is that some people do see the song a bit of a parody, and I don't think it's a parody at all. I think that what he's commenting on, though, is not is not a joke. The music is the joke. Um, apparently, Robbie Robertson was responding to uh, a news article about Chinatown police in San Francisco being disbanded. Now, this has a very particular history, especially in San Francisco, uh, the 19th and 20th centuries in particular. The Chinese were used as laborers. Uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1920, uh, they were consistently killed with impunity and Chinatown created their own police force to assist their citizens. So the disbanding of it, again, for someone like Robbie Robertson that does nothing but do that Americana historical locations, 
Chinatown, the fact that he's seeing Chinatown and like protecting the Chinese community in San Francisco as part of America is a step. That's a good, that's a good thing. And to see the disbandment as being something akin to losing a railroad or like losing a grocery store or losing something as a, that's a part of history. I see why Robbie Robertson was going for this in the same way that the last of the blacksmith is sad. Cause just like the Buffalo and where, what are we going to do now or whatever? Just like the railroads that all white people love and the blacksmiths, it, they're all going away. You know, it's shootout in Chinatown. They nailed up every door. They're going to level it to the ground and close it forevermore. They're going to turn the place upside down so that you won't recognize it at all. And in a way, Chinatowns have just become, nobody lives there. They're yeah. just playgrounds to play in the pastiche of what Chinese culture is, quote unquote. But these are Chinese and Americans and it's a whole thing and the vibrancy is, is now gone. And I think that's worthy of being kind of sad about. So I think Robbie's heart's in the right place, I want to say. But the music is just so dumb and it it hurts. So that's my take. Yeah, San Francisco's Chinatown is definitely still legit, but I feel like... They have legit pockets just like New York, but, yeah. but where do people go? Even our Chinatown, there's people that live there. But they're not Chinese. Some of them are, though. You know, it's like they can point to one and be like, well, that's good enough. But it's, <laughs> there's nothing there. Well, it's, there's the, it's nothing the same thing there. that happens to every city. It's that the migrant communities form in this particular area. They create this amazing culture and all these uh, institutions, and then they get priced the fuck out of it. Well, and that's happened... Yeah, so I, that's what I'm saying, though. He's, talk, he's commenting on that. Right. And yeah. that comment is not... I think you are immediately not going to listen to it because of the music, and that's totes fair. Right. Totes fair, because he's not thinking on it the next level up. And I think he just wanted to play that riff and was like, I can get away with this. I can, I can do it. <laughs> and I honestly, I, I don't like the song. I don't like that, but I like the message. In a vacuum, that guitar sounds cool. In a vacuum, that guitar sounds cool. Yeah. There, said it. Track seven, The Moon Struck One, written by Robbie Robertson. Why? Vocals by Leah <laughs> Manuel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like I'm running out of like patience at this point. Oh man, because I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Because like I do, I do think that they're doing interesting things on this on this album. But this song fucking sucks. Snooze fest. I mean, R.I.P. Little John Tyler, I guess. But oh. so the only interesting thing that I can point to is that Viney says that this is one of the the only songs that he can think of that there's an actual straight up Beatles influence. Um, when they sing right before the chorus, if you will, the uh, the Moonstruck One part, when they do, once we went for a swim in the noonday mm. sun, you know, as far as we could run, just kind of like that, kind of it sounds like, like the long and winding road, like very, you could almost feel an orchestra coming underneath of it. Uh, very, I can I can see the Beatles thing. The lyrics, though, Kelly, do you know what happened in the song? Can you tell me? A boy drowned? So, no. So, that's He wrong. didn't die. He fucking died. Right. At first reading, I thought he says triangle twice in the song, so I was thinking. Right, I thought, yeah, me too. But they're brother and sister. I see. I don't even know. Is that true? Yeah. Well, at the beginning, it says Janie or whatever and little John Tyler. He's my cohort. Yes. That just means friend. It does. Yeah. So So who's the brother? I mean, the narrator, the little John, because they're both Tyler. There's Janie. I don't remember her name. Whatever. And little John, Julie, and little John Tyler. They're brother and sister. John Tyler, right? Oh, that's fine. Okay, yeah. so I missed that brotherly yeah. connection. All right, so I was reading Love Triangle. That's probably wrong. So we have Jules and John Tyler. We have an I character. I could only see this as the room. Mm. Tommy is I. Lisa is Jules. And Denny is John Tyler. So Tommy, the I, is with Lisa, Jules. Denny, John Tyler, is the friend. Somehow, our narrator feels... That all of the wild horses in the world are going to conspire to take them away. To take them away. So I don't really understand. What I mean, that's I mean. a great fucking song. The Rolling Stones version is whatever, but the Sunday's cover, it's fantastic. Anyway. All the wild horses. Wild horses, yeah. Oh, well, listen to that from that drag guy. Me away. I'm interested to hear better versions because Bob Dylan does it and it's terrible. So when I <laughs> when I heard that, I was like, great. That's I don't want to. So anyway, so, so somehow wild horses in the world are conspiring to like keep them apart. So I want to know more about that story, but. Then they go and swim in the noonday sun. Okay, that's fine. I don't know. I don't know how we got there. They're then running through a pasture. I don't know why. Then our dude, Denny John Tyler, gets stung by a fucking snake. Oh, right, right. He dies of a snake bite. By the lake. Right. And he's really, really hurt, guys, in the dirt. And then he dies. Right, right. Same so great, great forget. lyrics. Yeah. I mean, really. Well well done, mm-hmm. Robbie. Well done. Then it turns to Tommy I, we'll call him, who is vacant. Then there's Julie Lisa, who has a broken wing. And then Denny, Don, Denny John Tyler's death allows them to go to Durango, 
to, I guess, get away from... The did snake? they kill him, you think? <laughs> did they plant the snake? This is why I don't understand. What are you trying to get away from? Dealing with your friend's death? I mean, I guess they're just so sad at yeah, Denny's death I that they're so. leaving. But their car breaks down, so they can't. And then it's over, right? So I guess then they have to deal with the death of their friend. Right. Or brother, which is worse. Yeah. The song end! Over. <laughs> Either way you cut it, this song fucking sucks. Yeah, I'm so mad at it. We have to I thought it sounded like shitty Pokemon music. <laughs> like the organ parts during the chorus. <laughs> I, I just, I wrote, I liked Garth and Manuel. Like, I mean, I sound like a broken record, and I don't think I like them, actually. I just think I have to find something. <laughs> I like this. I like <laughs> this. <laughs> oh, God. Track eight. Thinking out loud. Robbie, you should do that a little bit more. Written by Robbie <laughs> Robertson. Vocals by Danko. This song is weird. It's another song that I think doesn't make any sense. It's like bad lyrics about daydreaming, being on the cloud, and then... A circus performer dies. And no one cares. <laughs> they just want to talk about house dicks. What's a house dick? <laughs> Apparently it's a detective. I had to look it up. Oh, yeah. Dick is short for like... So okay. that was jarring, though, I gotta say. <laughs> Viney does say, quote, There is a nice, chunky, metallic bass guitar tone from Rick Danko. Track number nine, Smoke Signal. Kind of a rocker. It's a rocker rock song. Written by Robbie Robertson, of course. Uh, Levon Helm is on the vocals. I think it suits Helm. 100%. I can't imagine this being anybody else's. We get our roll credits moment of the whole um, Cahoots album when he says Young Brothers joining Cahoots. Mm-hmm. So that was great. Um, this song could be written about Bob Dylan in the 1980s going to the movies. Went to the movie matinee to see the blue coach track. Literally, the first line is, I was watching a movie one day. It's like, if you took out that alone, oh, you I would have been I didn't in. That. That flew right by. Yeah, the, the first thing is just like, went to the cinema and watching the Blue Coats, which oh, would have been, you know, right. like the army going through. And, uh, and yeah, talking about just, I mean, that's pretty much what it is, Native Americans. Apparently, didn't really know this, uh, multiple things on that front. Robbie Robertson apparently later gets real deep into that and starts writing songs about Native American history and stuff like that. Also, we've noted this on the podcast before because the American Indian movement uh, was rising at the same time as civil rights in America, just in different places. Right. And Johnny Cash had a whole album of co- songs, right, yeah. original songs about Native Americans. Not just like they're running around on a prairie, but like they fought. The guy who helped to raise the, the American flag in that famous image over Iwo Jima was a Native American. And he drank himself to death um, because of what he went back to. And so there are songs there. And I think it's worth keeping in mind that like that movement was happening right now. Mm-hmm. So the fact that... It, it it the smoke signal thing I think goes back to the you get away with it because it's the cinema it's almost a meta commentary on the on the movies themselves right. doing the things because it really follows we're seeing the army we're sending up a smoke signal and then later it's like I'm, I see my love she's been taken I'm sending a smoke signal it's like everything is through the smoke signal lens if that makes sense so well musically. It's just really straightforward. It had, definitely has more of like the southern roots rock mm-hmm. uh, feel to it than the other ones. And Levon's voice always helps them. I just love the smoke signal. And uh, no crazy instruments. It's mm, just no. very rocky. So. No, yeah, the, worst, okay. the worst Boring. parts here. Yeah. 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 I think the worst parts are, I think it was verse two. He says, Indian maid will plant the seed. And I said, don't say seed. And cultivate <laughs> and cultivate a whole new breed. Don't yeah, say breed. Yeah. Yeah. That. Uh, going through, I'm, I'm still researching uh, the Lewis and Clark and... You know, the Lewis and Clark, the, uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's like a, there's a book, like a pretty famous book at the time. I'm in the 1970s doing some research f- from the 70s. And it was still cool at that time to write about breeds and half breeds. There's a whole, there's a book Yikes. about breeds and half breeds. It's like kind of crucial. And like every time I go to it, I'm like, man, you're a really good writer. It's just crazy how like you never, you never thought about any of this. Like you were so ingrained here. Uh, which is kind of sucks when like you read these really great like passages and you're like, oh, that's really good. Like you're really getting out some good stuff. Oh man, what's this book? Breeds and half breeds. <laughs> what the fuck? And then we ate another dog. <laughs> oh, well, they did eat all the dogs. That's a story for another day, Kelly. Number ten, track ten. Sorry, volcano. Written by Ravi Robinson. Vocals by Rick Danko. This song is cray. The song is cray. 
It's another rapey classic from the band. Rapey classic? Yeah. I don't even know that. I can't listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the whole thing is like... Oh, I'm going to blow. Yeah, I'm so horny. If you don't fuck me, you're making me be in pain. So you owe me sex. So hurry up and give it to me because you owe it to me. All right, so this is reflecting horribly on my boy Danko. Because (laughs) apparently this was all Danko from Peter Viney. Quote, Danko says that he spent a lot of time experimenting in the studio. Seemingly, he was the only one interested. In particular, arrangements, producing, and multi-tracking uh, himself on this song. This song, uh, sans the lyrics, it does sound different than literally every other song on this album. And I don't know if that's good or bad, yeah. but it it clearly, Rick Danko is just experimenting in a in a fucking studio, changing like the way things sound, and then it got on the album by accident. I don't understand why it's here. Huh. Um, but Garth Hudson's horns sound really great. You you never, you didn't catch that? Like the way, everything just sounds different. Like it's more, it feels more mechanical than instruments actually playing. His voice also, there's something going on there. It's not a clean vocal. He's doing something with his voice. Huh. I mean, especially on the volcano screaming part, yeah. you can definitely hear it. I mean, the, the, musically, the, I think the the chorus is neat. It's not super special, but I mean, I don't know. It's lots of horns. Yeah, lots of funky it's stuff. It's a straight up rocker. Yeah. I mean, Garth's horns at the beginning are always, I love them. But no, this song is a throwaway. Sorry, Danko. I'll be your bushwhacker. Jesus Christ. Track 11. The close of night four, before they come out on the encore and play all the hits, The River Hymn, written by Robbie Robertson. Vocals. Levon Hellman, and this is another great Helm track that it just, it suits him. This is a perfect Levon Helm song. I don't really know what to really say about this. I think it's a very pretty song. It harkens back to revivalism, going down by the river, watching the river flow doing everything there i mean it's like a celebration a thanks to the river gods and water and all kinds of stuff like that it's a very it's a very americana american story all of our great cities are on the water you know there's a reason for that and it's nice to remember that sometimes Is this a love song to a river? Because it kind of feels like that, it's which is fine. Wide I think it, it certainly has some crescendo moments that are like old Dixie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so too. And the, the gospel organ is, you know, pointed in there. And I don't know. It wasn't for me. It's boring. Yeah. It's it's a very, it's but it's another, it's a, I think this is a song that you could see a gospel singer singing. Yeah, it totally. a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and it's funny that they, you know, I'm so glad I brought my mandolin play the river hymn i don't know i kind of people hate that line but i hmm. seem to I yeah like i didn't it. hate this song. i just was like eh, i probably would skip it yeah oh i definitely would too yeah. yeah um but but i can also see this being a pretty cool song to if they ever played it live which i'm not sure if they have it would be a good one because i'm sure they could bring a lot i mean in their prime bring a lot of emotion to to it and if you are wondering at home um just if you're currently hearing the river hymn um, all you need to know is that if you hear a lonesome drone, it's as common as a stone, and it gets louder as the day grows dim. <laughs> if, if you're hearing that right now, that's the river hymn. Duh. Duh. All right, Kelly, so that is the the end of night four. So we listen to Moondong Matinee. We listen to Goots. Goots. This is, we did it. We we got through the discography, if you will, of the band. Dear God. Which is crazy. Took so um, Give me in, in summation, conclusion, how you feel about the end of the night. So uh, the band has gone off. They've played their hits, you know, and they're gone. We are leaving the theater and your mind is running. What is it saying? What does your mind say? Um, 
at least it wasn't last night, I think is what my mind would be saying. Like, I had a better time than last night. See, that's shocker. Because <laughs> I think last night would have been the night I probably, if I was just sitting on paper, I probably would have chosen. I don't know what it was about um, the last two albums, but I just really had a hard time getting through them. I didn't want to listen to them. Yeah. I didn't enjoy them when I did. Uh, with the exception of a couple things that we talked about mm-hmm. uh, on the show. But this one, I don't know. With Accepting that Moondog... Matinee, not daydream. Uh, It was wholly unnecessary, an album to exist. At least the songs are fun because there were good songs to begin with versus there's so many clunkers in the two albums before that that we did last night uh, that I I would much rather listen to this because even though Cahoots isn't super strong, uh, I didn't hate it where I I had such a vitriol, like, I don't want to do this to the albums last, in the last performance. Yeah. Um, and I think that part of it is because, like, not only do I really like the first three tracks, I think they're genuinely great. Um, my favorite, through this, I've realized, my favorite version of the band um, is when they're writing for Richard Manuel's voice. Because when they get the instruments right for him to really go nuts on, which is why I think music for Big Pink is so good and the band mm-hmm. is so good. And, like, Levon's great. And when they're doing the Roots Rock, Southern Rock thing, you have to have him on there because it doesn't make any sense. And in the same regard, I feel like you really have to play to Manuel's, like, that vulnerability that we, that he does when he sings, when he's going full bore. Uh, and when they write for him, I think that they are a lot more successful. So I think that's my favorite version of the band is when we're focused on really getting all the mileage we can out of his voice. True. I mean, so. I think that's fair. And I think I've said much the same thing. I think it's a combination of all of them. And when they get it right, they get it right. And I think it, they stop getting it right. And I don't think it's just because Robbie's like, you don't get to sing the song or, or whatever. It becomes, are you able to anymore? Right. And that's kind of the dark, the darkness that's starting to creep in when we start thinking about it. Why isn't these things happening? Why aren't they playing stuff live? Why aren't they doing whatever? It's because they're starting to break down. They're doing what... You know, some musicians come out of this period and they're still unfortunately making music to this day, 2018, and some do not make it out of that period. And the band does not make it out. So yeah. so that's kind of the sad end to night four. Way to bum everybody out as we're leaving. <laughs> You're just sitting there with a sign saying the end is near. And it is near because we'll see you next episode for night five. That's right. Now, the reason why we were not able originally to go to Night 5 is because it sold out immediately. Because it's the only one anybody can actually agree on going to. Because, of course, we're not going to listen to The Last Waltz. (laughs) Of course not. Because that would make all the sense. We are going to listen to Rock of Ages. Which, that's right, I think it's a better album than The Last Waltz. And that's why it's it's tougher. Because if they were to do this, everyone would go to Night 5. So... That would have sold out immediately. Yeah. Then it would have been the dregs of the the previous four nights that you have to fight over. So we'll see you next episode for night five. We're going to talk about Rock of Ages and we're going to talk about the band in whole. So good night, Kelly. Good night, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow night for night five, Rock of Ages, and closing out Man Month. Man Month? Band Month. Oh. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah, this band is called Man. Man of all. (laughs) We'll start turning. Torches start. Carpenter